0: We have a poem. First, it's in poetry form by A. R. Emmons. It's called Play. Nothing is going to become of anyone except death. Therefore, it's okay to yearn too high. The grave accommodates swell, rambunctiousness, and ruin is not compromised by magnificence. The cutoff point liberates us to the common disaster. So pick a perch, applebough, for example, in bloom. Tune up, and if you like, drill imagination right through necessity. It's all right. It's been taken care of. It's allowed considering.
1: come of anyone. Nothing except death. Therefore, there, boy, it's okay. except death the grave accommodates swell rambunctiousness and ruins not compromise to the common disaster so pick a perch tune up and pick a perch apple branch for example in bloom pick a perch and tune up and bloom pick a perch and That nothing's going to become of anyone. Nothing, 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 nothing. Nothing's going to become of anyone. Nothing except, you know. To yearn too high
0: you, Ruthie. It's so much more than okay. <laughs> we, we're glad you picked a perch here, aren't we? <laughs> we have another reading. It's from Lao Tzu, ancient, ancient words, but Ursula Le Guin translation. Stop being holy, forget being prudent, it'll be a hundred times better for everyone. (laughs) Stop being altruistic, forget being righteous. People will remember what family feeling is. Stop planning, forget making a profit. There won't be any thieves and robbers. But even these three rules needn't be followed. What works reliably is to know the raw silk, hold the uncut wood, need little, want less, forget the rules, be untroubled.
1: Nothing's going to become of anyone except death. This is the opening line of the poem you will find printed in your order of service. Nothing's going to become of anyone except death. If you're like me, you looked at the theme for this month and thought, oh, come on, do we really have to go there, death? I have a leaking roof that my landlord just refuses to fix. Or I have a kid that is so troubled, I am fielding calls from his teacher every other day. Or if I have to deal with one more dark, bleak thing this winter, I think I'm going to go stark raving mad. Who thought of these themes anyway? Could they have been thinking to all to each, sooner or later, delicate death nothing 's going to become of anyone except death. that is the absolute real of reality, but as a culture. We just don't want to go there. Mm -mm. We don't want to see it. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to speak it. Did anybody happen to watch the Academy Awards this week? Our celebrities now stretch their faces beyond recognition or even the simple capacity to smile. In the vain hope, the vain hope of deceiving us and themselves to this Our common disaster. We ask our friends, our family members to get their grieving over and done with in one or two months, even after the death of someone they dearly loved. We don't have time for graves. We don't have time for tears. And we don't have time for heartbreak. It's just... Too morose. Nothing's going to become of anyone except death. Like a modern day prophet, Archie Ammons begins his poetic oracle by mischievously stating the obvious in order to open doors of insight and create room for transformation. This is the business of religion. This is why we gather together to venture into the heart of reality, to not shy away from the big questions of meaning and the aim of existence. And so at Ammon's urging, we will lean into the grave today. We will stick our head over the edge of that dark hole in the ground. We will lean into death instead of away from it. The poet-prophet reassures us, it's okay, it's all right. In point and fact, leading into the reality of death is not death, it's life. Leaning into death is freedom. Two summers ago, I worked at United Hospital in St. Paul as a chaplain in training. I was assigned the neurological floor. People faced brain cancer and severe epileptic seizures. I often spoke with people who had been told that they had a month to a year left to live. Stepping over the threshold, and into a hospital room of a stranger facing such momentous issues was somewhat overwhelming. And here's my little dark secret. I always was so grateful when the patient greeted me with the fact that they were evangelical. <laughs> Phew, good, I would always say to myself. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It meant I didn't have to do any fancy footwork explaining why I was there as a minister. We both knew why I was there. We both knew that the testing of the body meant the testing of the spirit. That in the hospital room, the world of the mundane cracks open into a vivid world, the vivid world of the transcendent. There is no place to hide from the big questions. Is there God? What have I meant to this world? Who are my people? What is the nature of this thing, death? I will never forget walking into a particular room, a woman about my age, wore a small, colorful cap. It was a cap everyone wore after brain surgery. We spoke for a while about her prognosis, nine months to one year left to live. At one point she turned to me, and I will never forget her face, ever. Her big brown saucer eyes, bright with tears. It's okay, she said. It's okay. My heart is bursting open. My heart is so open, it hurts to wear this gown. There is so much love. There is so much love in the giving and the receiving. Over and over again, from hospital bed to hospital bed, I heard Ammon's reassurance quoted back to me one way or another. It's okay. It's all right. It's been taken care of. Those who face death square in the face have a secret to tell. Inside of death is life. If you're willing to lean into it, there is something about that cutoff point that has the capacity to liberate. What if we were to live a year as if it were our last year? What if we were to practice dying? Poet and teacher Stephen Levine did just that. He recounts a year of his life in which he practiced dying. He writes, You might think that working with the dying would have fully prepared me for death, particularly since I have also been teaching Buddhist meditation. But during the course of my one-year experiment... I realized that all I had understood about death could be experienced at yet a deeper level. It was clear that though I was exploring the fear of death, it was the fear of life that needed to be investigated first. This statement is indeed Ammon's poem. When we practice dying, we practice living. And one of the keys to doing either one of those things well is developing a sense of curiosity, a sense of play. Neurologist and psychologist Stuart Brown is the director of the Institute of Play, where he investigates the science and the importance of this supposedly trivial endeavor. In an interview on the radio show Speaking of Faith, Brown relates something very interesting about this concept of play. He states, An inherent part of being playful is taking risk. The natural history of play in the world, both animal and human, is that persistent play increases the risk of death and damage while it's taking place. But it appears to be absolutely necessary for the well-being and the safe future of the species. So it is a conundrum, but to remove risk, all risk from kids' play, is to not allow them the spontaneity to develop themselves. Brown talks throughout the interview about the relationship of play and the health of an individual and the health of the species. He says if you look at the human situation, at least over the last 200,000 years or so, our capacity as a species to adapt. Whether we're in the Arctic or the tropics, the desert or a rainforest appears to be related significantly to our capacity to play. And if you look more closely at the development of the human being, you find that the human being really is designed biologically to play throughout the life cycle. We are built to play. We are built to dance across this high wire stretched between life and death while juggling the necessities of risk and pleasure, the two central components of play. Now think about a baby being bounced in the air. At the first toss, there's always that look on the baby's face. Whoa! What's happening? Should I cry? Should I laugh? Where am I? In that moment, when the baby's body leaves the assurance of their parents' outstretched hands, and they are suspended in that moment between danger and pleasure, we have a glimpse of what it is to live wide-eyed. What it is to live in the fullness of the moment. And if you observe further, you witness this spontaneous eruption of joy as the baby comprehends that, hey, this is life! This is life for a while, anyway. Anyway their parents' arms gives out. Joy happens in this alchemy of a little bit of danger, a little bit of pleasure, and a little bit of reassurance. This is the root system of play, and it is essential to our well-being. When we work too hard at avoiding death, when we work too hard at keeping our bodies, our lives safe and tidy, when we work too hard, period, we endanger our spirit. We endanger that vital animating force within us. The poet tells us that the very existence of the grave means freedom to play. The grave accommodates all kinds of rambunctious living, all kinds of wild and woolly energies, stops and starts, all kinds of yearnings, all kinds of play. It doesn't matter where you start to play, he says, it just matters that you play. Pick anything you want. Pick anything that attracts you. An apple branch, for example, in bloom. Stop worrying about being holy. I'm talking to myself here. Stop worrying about being holy. Stop, stop, forget being prudent. It'll be a hundred times better for everybody. Pick wherever you want to perch, but pick it. And tune up. Pick it. And drill, 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 drill imagination right through necessity. Practice imagination. Dig deep into play. And discover something wondrous. The raw silk of who you are. The uncut wood of what you are. It's okay. It's all right. Because that's how it is meant to be. It's been taken care of. We are meant to play. So play. It's okay. <gasps> Amen.